If you have been with us throughout this series of these letters to the churches in Revelation, you know that a couple of weeks ago we kind of got out of order. We jumped ahead to chapter 3, and then we went back to Thyatira. We just finished Thyatira, and so now we're coming back to chapter 3, but we're going jumping up ahead to verse 7 today because we've already done Sardis, and we're going to be looking at Philadelphia. And so all that was to, to better accommodate what we had going on in the month of June, which was pretty full, and so it's nice to get back on track. What that means is that we have two more uh, messages focused here on Philadelphia, and then we'll have two messages focused on Laodicea, and then we will complete this series of these letters to the churches of Revelation. And that will take us just about to Promotion Sunday and the start of a new school year, which is crazy to think that it's already that close. And when we get there, we'll start a new series that is going to be focused on the parables of Jesus, which I'm really excited about. I'm looking forward to that new series, but also am excited about finishing up this current one as well. And so uh, we'll pick up today on Philadelphia. And before we start reading the verses, let me just offer a, a little bit of context about Philadelphia. It's the home of the Eagles, the Flyers, the Phillies. Aren't you glad we don't have to talk about that city? Uh, I'm so glad I don't have to worry about that one. Uh, the ancient city of Philadelphia, there's not a whole lot of context to dive into today. Uh, what we do know about the city of Philadelphia, a couple of things that, that I found interesting was that there was a significant earthquake in AD 17 in this region that leveled about 10 cities. Philadelphia was one of them. And, and so as a result, when it was rebuilt, a lot of people tended to live on the outskirts, kind of the rural parts of the city. Uh, out of a fear for these earthquakes that were common in that region. And so it wasn't as urbanized maybe as some of the other cities, but it did still have a pretty strong uh, influence in this region and in this part of the world. And a lot of that came from some of these industries that were still fairly prolific. There was a vine-growing industry, a textile industry, uh, a leather-making industry. So it was still affluent. But what was really most notable for the city of Philadelphia was there was this imperial road that moved from, from Rome to the east. And it was a very important route, obviously, to the whole empire and to this whole region. And Philadelphia was on that road. And it was, it was further inland. And so as a result, it actually served as someone of a fortress city. And it became known for its fortitude and its, and its ability to provide that sort of protection and resilience. It, it had a certain level of strength. And just as you heard uh, April referred to that in the children's message. That kind of carries a certain theme and a tone that you're going to hear when we read through this passage this morning is the strength that Philadelphia had. And so let's, let's pick up. We're going to read all the verses 7 through 13, but we're really only going to talk about 7 through 11 today. So you know why? Because it's 7, 11. Okay, anyway, okay, let's keep going. It's not really why we're doing it. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is holy and true who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, that you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. 
Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, again, we'll be focused on verses 7 through 11 today, and we're not going to work through them one by one, but look at them with a little bit more of an overview and somewhat thematically. And the way I want to kind of introduce this theme is to recognize the pattern in in the, the formula that you typically see in these letters that have been written to these churches. We've talked about this throughout this series, right? They all tend to follow a similar pattern. But the church in Philadelphia, that pattern, there's something missing, right? There's an element that is not included in this letter that typically is included in the others. And I don't know if you caught it, but if you walk through that formula and that pattern, here's what you typically see. You see the recipients of the letter being acknowledged and identified, right? So the church in Philadelphia, Laodicea, Smyrna, Pergamum. Then you have a reference to Jesus, the one who is speaking with some sort of vivid description of who Jesus is, right? In this one, he is holy and true, holds the key of David, right? So you get a description of Christ. Then you have a reference to the divine knowledge, right? I know this throughout the series. I know your deeds. I know your afflictions. I know where you live. There's this divine knowledge that is revealed in the course of this letter. And then, in almost all these letters, you get a verdict, right? A word of concern, a warning, typically that is started with the words, yet I hold this against you. And that's where you find these these calls for repentance, this call of warning. And that's what's missing to this church in Philadelphia, right? It's really, there's no voice of concern. There's no call to repentance, which tells you a lot about the church in Philadelphia. It tells you a lot about who they are and what they are doing. doesn't mean that they are uh, immune to or have been spared concerns or difficulties or trials, but this is primarily a word of encouragement, It's not really this call to repentance. It's not really this call of warning. It's, hey, I see what you've done. I see what you're doing. Keep on. Continue. It's a word of encouragement. And so I say that to set the tone because if there's one objective that I have for us this morning in listening to this scripture, it's that we would all leave here today encouraged. That's what I want for you. I want you to be encouraged today. I don't know what's brought you here I don't, I don't know what expectations you, you came with this morning, but I truly believe in my heart of hearts, God has brought you here so that he can encourage you today. So embrace that. Open your heart open. Open your heart up to that idea that he wants to encourage you this morning. Now, this theme of encouragement that we're going to try to tackle, to me, is, is best discussed in light of the scripture, kind of using this theme of identity. Because of really what I see when looking at this letter are two distinct discussions related to identity, both to the recipients and what it means to be the people of God, but also Christ and how we identify and understand who Christ is. And so I kind of want to work through those two different things. Identity is a loaded term. There are a lot of different aspects to understanding what makes up our identity, what shapes our identity, but, but really those two unique lenses are the ones that we're going to look through is what does it mean to be the people of God And then also, what is the identity of Christ as it's presented in this particular message? So so starting with the people of God, I want to do some background work. Uh, Some of this is is somewhat obvious if you've walked through uh, Bible stories at all in the past. You know that God has a chosen people that really begins with the call of Abraham. right? So you go all the way back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 12, and there's this covenant that is established with Abraham. There's this call that is placed on Abraham's life. What does God say to him? Go to the land that I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation. Abram didn't have 
any children at the time, and yet he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. This was the promise that started it all. This was the covenant that was then passed down to Isaac and to Jacob. And then Jacob wrestles with God and is renamed Israel and has 12 children who become the 12 tribes of Israel. And Israel becomes this great nation that was promised. And they are known to be God's chosen people. These are the Jews, right? Now, part of what you see with that sense of chosenness is the reason God had this plan, obviously it was gonna all work out with a pointing to Jesus, which was gonna happen later, but even in the moment, God's reason for choosing a people was to reveal himself as the one true God, right? That he was unlike any other God of any other nations, right? That, that these other nations would worship and aspire to, to adore, that God was different. He was the one that could conquer Pharaoh of Egypt. He was the one that could bring them up out of suffering. He was a different God. That's part of why he had these chosen people. And so their identity as a chosen people was very important. So what did he tell them to do? He said, protect it. Keep it pure. Right? You, you aren't to intermarry. You aren't to follow foreign gods. You're not to, to mix race. Right? And it created this very elected sense of exclusiveness. Right? The, the point being is that after a generation upon generation and, and all these different stories of this chosen covenant for these people... Right? There was this sense of exclusivity. Right? That to be Jew, to be Jewish, to be a part of this nation was based on your heritage, based on your race, based on your bloodline that was protected and kept pure for centuries. Right? And, and you had this privileged access to know the one true God. And so what that created over time was this sense of us versus them, right? For the, for the Jews, it was their God's chosen people, the Jews, and then there's everyone else, right? And it created that sort of disconnect that at its best just created distinctions, but at its worst created discrimination and hostility even towards others, right? And so, so there was this us versus them mentality. And, and part of the reason I, I bring that to our attention is because we do this, don't we? Right? We, we use all these other things in our lives that shape our sense of identity. And in those metrics and those things that we use to shape our identity, we make determinations of where we belong with who we belong and who doesn't belong with us. Right? We, we identify ourselves based on our own nationality, our own race, our age, our gender, our orientation, our wealth, we, our politics. There are all these things that we use. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> got it, <clears throat> to identify ourselves. And, and then we use that to determine who's going to, who we're gonna associate with and who won't associate with us. And we make these exclusive determinations all the time. And, and the, the reality is, is that we need to ask ourselves, what are we using to make those decisions? And are the voices we are listening to leading us to more of an us versus them perspective of the world? There are those that I belong with and those that I won't. And we need to recognize that because, as we've talked about over the last several weeks, the, the temptation to follow with that way of thinking often leads to building walls and chasms rather than bridges. But as the church, we are called to build bridges. 
We're called to love the neighbor, right? And so we have to be very sensitive to how we begin to really identify ourselves and to understand what does it mean to be the chosen people of God. And so, so there was this us versus them dynamic that was at play here with Philadelphia and really for all these early churches. Right? If, you, if you play it out, you see that there is this opposition that is, that is facing the Philadelphian church and the way it's defined here according to this letter is that they are confronted with those who belong to the synagogue of Satan. Uh, we've seen that term before. I think it was with Smyrna earlier. And what we talked about then is it doesn't necessarily mean a literal uh, you know, Satanism that existed in that time more as just a, a strong uh, declaration and description to say, they don't belong to me, right? This is the opposite of those who belong to me. And yet what does Jesus describe here for those that belong to the synagogue of Satan? They claim to be Jews, but are liars, right? They're false. And so what's happening right here? is Jesus is totally reorienting what it means to be a true Jew, what it means to be a truly chosen child of God. And what he's saying is that it is not based upon heritage and lineage and bloodline. It's something new. It's something different. He is twisting their worldview around. Here's how he's doing it. Notice a couple of things. The first is he says, I'm going to have them come and bow down at your feet. That is a direct reference to Isaiah 60, 14. Right, so if you go back and you read Isaiah 60, 14, it is a verse that speaks to this kind of common anticipation that, that Jews often held that it, there would be a day where the pagan nations would come and bow down at their feet. And, and so this was kind of their belief. This is kind of what added to that sense of, of superiority that they could often fall victim to. And so Jesus is saying, you think that's gonna how, is how it's gonna be, but in reality, you're gonna come and fall down at the church's feet, right? And so he's challenging that notion. He's completely shifting it. The reason I wanted to read those last two verses, verses 12 and 13, is the reference to the new Jerusalem. He's saying what's gonna make you truly a chosen child of God is not your citizenship and the ability to inhabit this earthly Jerusalem, but the new Jerusalem that is coming. That is the city for my people. And so he's totally redefining the identity of what it means to be God's chosen people. And here's what I love about what he's doing. What he's saying is that all of this is not defined by your race, your heritage, your bloodline. It's defined by what you believe about Jesus. For these who had refused to acknowledge the Messiahship of Jesus, they were missing what it meant to be God's chosen people. Right? And, and with this revelation, what we see is that once again, God is reiterating this consistent truth that regularly appears in Scripture, right? That our temptation and our tendency, especially in terms of identity, is to measure those things and build those things upon that which is external, right? That which we can see. But what does God look at? He looks at the heart. Right? We're going to define ourselves by all these things that we think are externally important. God cuts through all of it and says, no, I look at what's going on right here. What does your heart say about Jesus? <clears throat> That's what determines your identity in Christ. That's what determines if you are a chosen child of God. And so a fundamental question for us this morning is very simple. How are you defining yourself? Is your identity truly built upon what your heart says about Jesus? Or are you letting your identity be shaped by all the wrong things? Right? It, is it evident in your life, right, by 
by the way you live, by the words that you use, the things that you do, your approach to life, that your love for Jesus comes first. Do people see that in you? Because right? it should impact everything. What we think about Jesus absolutely approaches or influences our approach to school, to work, to family, to parenting, to friendships, to money, to all the things that make up this life. All those things should be influenced by what we believe about Jesus. Is it evident in your life? Is that is what's shaping you more than anything else? See, too often we fall victim to letting the wrong things of the world influence us, but the more we center our lives upon Jesus and allow that to be the, the thrust and the foundation of who we are, then it creates this strength, it creates this fortitude. For those moments when the world comes crashing down or the voices of those around us begin to get us to question who we are or, or our purpose or our significance or our worth or whatever it is, and we're flooded with those voices that prey upon our insecurities and make us think that we're less than, make us think that we're broken. It's in those moments that you hear the words of Jesus say, no, you're mine, you're chosen, you're loved. That's your identity. We belong to this new Jerusalem and Christ is reorienting their whole perspective of it here in this church. Now in that reorientation, it also highlights the identity of Christ and who he is, and how we are to know him to be. And it really accentuates in this letter his strength. Right? That's to me what really comes out. Look at the things that Jesus does. I mean, you get some really great descriptions. He identifies himself as the one who is holy and true. I love the simplicity of that. Right? The holiness of God, the truth of our God is fully revealed in Jesus Christ. What are some of the other things you see? He holds the key of David. Right? And what he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. <clears throat> this is again a direct reference to Isaiah 22, 22. Now, if you would go back and read Isaiah 22, you would discover that it's a very particular situation that's dealing with two people that served under the reign of Hezekiah and all this other stuff. But the imagery for the key of David is again, one of authority, one of strength. I, I love that image. Man, what I, what I open, no one can shut. What I shut, no one can open. I'm the only one that has the keys, right? That was the authority and the power and the strength that the king Held. And so Jesus is using that imagery here to say, I'm the one that holds the keys to this Davidic kingdom, right? To this messianic kingdom. No one can change how this kingdom is going to be built and shaped and structured. So I've opened a door before you. And what, what a beautiful statement, right? This, this opportunity, this way to be known as God's chosen child through Christ is a way that has been made open to each and every one of us and nothing will ever change that. No government, no crisis, no obstacle, no challenge, nothing changes that. That is always a path that is made open to you. The question we have to ask is, will we walk down it? But nothing diminishes the strength of Christ and the grace that is offered through his blood and through his sacrifice. That door has been made open and no one will shut it. And so you look at, at that display of his strength. You also see this reference to his protection, right? I will protect you from the hour or keep you from the hour of trial that is about to come on the whole world and test the inhabitants of the earth. This is verse 10. Now, this is a very tricky verse and I do need to take just a little bit of a moment to, to dovetail off and, and try to explain some of the complexities of it. It's very difficult to interpret. It's very complex Greek and grammar. 
And so as a result, you have a lot of questions that accompany verse 10 and a lot of different answers and interpretations. Let me give you an example of some of these questions. You start reading through it and you say, well, what does keep from mean? Right? Does that mean that Jesus is going to just remove his chosen people so that they don't have to experience this difficulty at all? Does it mean they're going to actually still experience it, but they're just going to be protected from any adverse effects of it? And what is this great hour of trial that's coming upon the whole world? Is this the great tribulation that's referenced in Revelation 7 and other places in Scripture? Or is it more of a generic season of struggle and suffering that's kind of depicted through the bulk of the book of Revelation? And what is tribulation? Is it tempting? Is it testing? I had a lot of great questions and no real definitive answers. A lot of people have a lot of different ways to address that. Some people, this is where you see uh, the development, not just with this verse, but with several others, that the idea that there will be a rapture, right? That God's people will be removed from any great tribulation that may come upon the earth in the last days and that we will be spared from that experience. Other people will say, no, you're not going to be spared from that experience, but you're going to be protected from it. A lot of different interpretations. I'll just be honest with you. I don't have a definitive stance on it. I mean, I read all the Left Behind books when they came out in high school, and I loved them, man. I was like, this is it. This is how it's going down, y'all. Like, everybody needs to read it. I was so convinced. And then I just kept reading the Bible, and I realized it's not that easy. And so I, I don't have a definitive view on it. I really don't. But here's what I would tell you, is that uh, while I think those questions are definitely worth asking and studying pursuing, don't let it distract you from the main point. Right, the main point is that Jesus provides an incredible protection from his people. And so rather than getting lost in what the protection is going to look like, let's focus on how we get it. Right, rather than getting so distracted by the methodologies and the manifestations of this protection, let's really cling to a greater understanding of what does it mean to endure patiently, to hold to his word, to not deny his name. Let's make sure we figure that out. Let's make sure we get it. And then however it presents itself, praise be to God. But let's celebrate the fact that our Jesus is a Jesus that protects us. And let's rest comfortably in that protection. Right? And so, so you begin to lay out all the things that Jesus does. Look at the disparity between the two. Right? We, we are, we are uh, having this great contrast in the scripture between all that Christ does and, and the simple things that we are asked to do. What does Christ do? Man, he, he has the keys of David. He opens doors. He protects us. He's going to give us new names. He's going to make new things. Like he is the chief actor in all of these things. We are asked to do one thing. Hold on. Just hold on. Right? It says keep, keep my commands. Keep enduring. Right? It's, it's the same idea of continuation, of continuance. Just hold on is what he's asking you to do. Don't let anyone steal your crown. That means don't let anyone disqualify you. Don't let anyone take this from you. Hold on to what you know is true. That's all we have to do. Now, I love the way that he presents this to the, to the church in Philadelphia. Right? He, he makes this subtle reference. Though your strength is small. In other translations, though your strength is limited, you have held on to my word and have not denied my name. And in that statement, we get this beautiful picture of the Philadelphian church that reminds us of this powerful paradox that we find in the gospel. He knows their strength is limited. 
He knows it's, it's not enough. And yet they're using all that they can to endure and to be patient. But what it's really doing is calling to mind the limitations of our own strength, the limitations of our own abilities. It really helps us question how we respond to our weaknesses, to trials, to hardships, to difficulties. How do you respond to your weaknesses? You given that thought recently? I think we, we tend to gravitate in a couple of different categories. A lot of times what we do with, with weaknesses and hardships is we just try to conceal it. Right, so if we know that we're gonna have to confront something that might reveal our weaknesses, our imperfections, our failings, our, our mistakes, whatever it is, man, we try to avoid it and hide it. Right, so if our marriage is too difficult, if raising children is too, our, our jobs, whatever, man, let's just pretend like it's not there. That way I don't have to acknowledge the limitations of my own strength, just conceal it. Some of us, man, we meet it head on with resistance and we try to conquer these weaknesses, right? We refuse to have anything that might suggest that we are weak. So just try harder, just do what you can to overcome it, right? You can fight through it, you can persevere, you can fix this. And we just try to conquer it, trying to fool ourselves and God that we're strong enough to do it on our own. And these tend to be the reactions that we have and the responses we have to weaknesses. Here's my question. Anybody come here today mindful of your weaknesses delighting in them. You know, that's what we're called to do, to delight in your weakness. Think again about how this passage, which I think pairs so well with Revelation chapter three in the church in Philadelphia, the passage that we have in 2 Corinthians that once again tells us, therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me this is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What a beautiful picture to recognize that we are called to delight in the things that are difficult, to find joy in them, because it is there, in those moments of weakness, that Christ's power rests on us. And I believe this is a word we need to hear. I believe this is how we get encouraged this morning because my sense is that for many of us that have walked in this room today, we are familiar with hardship and difficulty and weaknesses, especially after this last year. Some of you have walked in this room, some of us have walked in this room, and we're carrying the weight of grief, right? We're missing a spouse, we're missing a parent, we're missing somebody, and it's just weighing on us. Some of us walk into this room and we're exhausted by the angst and the worries and the concerns for our children and the stress that we feel. We try to parent and lead them. Some of us, our marriages are hanging on barely. We're worn out by it, at a loss for what the next step is. Some of us are walking in this room and we're suffocated by loneliness point is, whatever your story is, it's not hard for any of us to find those moments that remind us of our weaknesses. And yet, though they are so readily apparent, we tend to walk in this room and we try to conceal it, or we conquer it, and Christ says, no, come 
and delight in it and rejoice in it because it is there that my power will rest on you. We're here today because we need to be reminded of that word that Christ says and that Paul references there in 2 Corinthians, right? My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. What an incredible thing to behold. All we have to do is hold on to trust in his power, to trust in his strength, to rest in his grace. And it sounds beautiful. It sounds poetic. How in the world do we do it? Like, what does it look like? That's how I want to close our time. And I, I, I want to do this by first trying to create a picture, an image, and then I'll try to explain how I think that image plays itself out in real life. So in January 2019, uh, my family flew over to China to finalize the adoption of our youngest son, David Wu. And uh, it was an incredible trip, awesome experience. And the way they typically coordinate these trips is that when you arrive, they use the first few days for, you know, adjusting to jet lag, introducing you to Chinese culture so that you can kind of learn a little bit more about the country of origin and all these different things. And so our first few days were spent in Beijing, and we got to do all the things that tourists do. We get to go to the Great Wall, get to go to the Forbidden City. Uh, and I don't know how familiar you are with uh, Chinese climate, but it's cold in January. And so we have these these pictures to show you just how bundled up we had to get to, to enjoy the Great Wall and to go through the Forbidden City, right? Everybody's decked out in coats and it's all, you know, wrapped around them with hoods and everything. And I will tell you that for sure the most difficult part of that whole experience from a weather standpoint was the Forbidden City. Uh, the Forbidden City is, is so vast and open that there was nothing to break the fierceness of the wind. So you're like in low 40s, and then there's a wind chill of another 10 to 12 degrees. I mean, it, it feels like freezing weather. It's brutal, okay? So that was your tourism day. <laughs> uh, we, we, you know, as adults, had the ability to, to navigate through it. I mean, we're, you know, on the Great Wall, for crying out loud. We can enjoy this. My, my son did pretty well. My daughter is really laid back, and there are very few things in this world that bother her, and that's true. But on that list of things that bother her, one of them is cold, okay? If she is cold, She's miserable. And so when we were at the Forbidden City, uh, she had no interest in really looking around and going to it. She just came to me and she said, Daddy, will you hold me? And of course, I said, absolutely. And so that picture right there is what her and mine experience was for the two and a half mile walk <laughs> for several hours through the Forbidden City. And it was honestly one of my favorite memories of the whole trip. And I'm using that as an example this morning because I want you to see what it looked like. I didn't have a baby Bjorn, didn't have any way to like carry her on my back or anything like that. Like I literally had to hold her. But you know, she made it easier because after she asked me to carry her, she just held on. She didn't squirm, she didn't resist, she didn't complain. She just put her face on my shoulder and she just held on. She held on so tightly, one of those hugs, like I could have let go and she could have still just been clinging to me. And that's how we got through it. And that's the image I want you to think about. Right, that when we come to these moments in life, right, that, that we're gonna have the opportunity to come before God the Father 
and see the strength that he has to carry us. See, there's something really beautiful about a moment when a child comes to a parent and says, will you carry me? It's an admission of weakness. It's an admission of saying, I, I can't go further. Can you help me? And there's a beauty in that innocence. Right? And, and maybe for some of us, that's what you have to do today. Maybe that's your first step. Whatever weakness, whatever burden, whatever trial, whatever hardship you're carrying today, God has brought you here to this moment just so you can look at him and say, God, carry me. I can't go any further. I don't know how to do this on my own. Just carry me. That's the first step. For some of us, that's exactly the prayer we need to pray. And when you do, what you have to recognize is that it's rarely over in an instant. It is a long journey. The weather doesn't just vanish. And so we're not called to, to squirm and resist and to fight and to complain, but just hold on. Don't question the pace. Don't question the route that he takes. Just hold on to him. And let him get you through. Now, what does that look like practically? I mean, the only way I know to, to answer that is by word of testimony. And I recognize everybody's struggle, everybody's hardship and journey is different. Mine's different from yours, but there are certain lessons that I think we can all cling to when we think about these seasons. So for me, I know there have been some pretty significant seasons in my life where I had to come before God and say, carry me, I, I, I can't do this. Probably the, the first one that I really remember wrestling with was early in our marriage where we struggled to start a family. It's hard. Moments and seasons in my life where I had to surrender what I thought I was gonna do. Dreams that I had held on to for 17 years. Understanding of my calling, my sense of purpose. Most recently, losing my dad. Dealing with grief. These are all seasons that created some really hard questions about who I was, what his plan was for my life, for our life. Moments filled with tremendous sadness and pain that brought with them questions, doubts about who he is, his plan. Do I really believe it? See, we all go through those moments, whatever they are, and we really have two choices, press in or walk away. For whatever reason, every time I hit one of those moments, I pressed in. And I just held on. He said, carry me. So what did that look like? I, I prayed. Prayed a lot. Prayed prayers of anger. Prayers filled with tears. Days where I didn't feel like praying, but I prayed. I read scripture reminding myself of what was true, what he said more than what I was saying or what the world was saying. I held on to it. I surrounded myself with people that would encourage me to keep holding on. I won't lie to you and tell you it was easy. It's not. But I will tell you, God's been there every step of the way. 
Even when I couldn't feel him, even when I couldn't sense it, he was there. That's what all of this is about. To come in here and to delight in our weaknesses because it gives us stories to encourage one another and say, he can carry you through because he's carried me. And so let's encourage one another to rest not on our own strengths, not on our own abilities, but on his everlasting grace. Let's remind one another he is strong enough to carry us through any storm, any trial, any season, any circumstance. Because we know that in our weakness, he is strong. We know that his grace is more than sufficient. So whatever you face today, whatever you bring in, whatever awaits you tomorrow, delight in those weaknesses, delight in those challenges, and let the loving arms of Christ carry you through. Let's be encouraged by his everlasting strength and his amazing grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. Help us hold on. Let us not cling so tightly to the things of this world that we miss the loving arms of a father ever ready to carry us through. God, we cling to you, we trust in you, put our hope in you. Father, we, we ask that you would help us orient our lives around Jesus and only Jesus. God, that our heart's response would be to celebrate the Lordship of Christ, to truly rest and trust in his strength and his grace far above anything else. And so, Father, for those of us that have come into this room today, especially mindful of these challenges, especially mindful of these weaknesses, Father, those of us that have come in worried and concerned and anxious, those of us that have come in feeling lonely, unseen, those of us that have come in exhausted and at a loss and confused, may we find joy. May we be encouraged today and delight in those moments because they serve as a reminder that you are here. You're with us. You're for us. You'll carry us. don't deserve it. So we thank you, Father, for your amazing grace and your everlasting love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.